Hello and welcome to Reincarnation Past Lives Revisited where we will cover one of the many reported cases of reincarnation so we can bring the discussion out into the light about what happens to our souls after death. But before we go too much further I'd like to thank Alexius Arctos for his amazing sound engineering and editing work and Raphael Crooks for allowing us to use his music from the freepd.com public domain music site. I'd also like to thank Ben Bagley, who has done remarkable work on the website for the podcast. He has turned my incredibly shoddy website into a true thing of beauty. The web address is reincarnationplr.com if you'd like to take a look. And keep an eye on it because new content will become available over the next few months as we move forward. If anyone would like to get in touch with either Alex or Ben for work, Drop me a line at reincarnationplr at gmail.com and I can pass the message on to them. Apologies yet again for the long delay in posting an episode. Life is still crazy busy but my main problem was that I updated my microphone and headset and I love them but I've been dealing with an annoying hum that I have had trouble eliminating. I've wrestled it into a degree of submission for now, but I will keep tweaking things. So apologies if I sound a little bit different from here on in, or if you can hear the hum, I'm hoping to get rid of it in the future. Also, you'll probably be down to just episodes of just me relating cases for a little while, as my wedding is around three months away, and there is a lot of planning to do for it, and I'm up to my three monthly medical checks, so there's a lot going on. Fear not, health-wise I'm fine and the medical gurus are all very happy with my health but I need to simplify the parts of my life I can for just a little bit longer so thank you for your patience with me. I'm hopeful things will return to normal in 2023. Today's episode covers two cases that come from a book I found called The Children That Time Forgot. It was written by Mary Harrison and her husband Peter and it came about because one night she noticed her little son Leon picking flowers off their floral eiderdown. They didn't go into detail about their son's past life memories in the initial forward, but they do state that, somewhat confused, they contacted Woman's Own magazine to ask if other mothers had noticed their young children doing anything strange or unusual. And the response they received back was overwhelming, as so many people wrote in to relate their own children's unusual comments that seemed to relate to a life before this life. So while this isn't a Stevenson case or a Jim Tucker case and I can't really verify much about the authors, the cases do seem to have the ring of truth and do follow the documented cases on record. Interestingly, the Carl Eden case is in this book and it was written by Carl's parents before he was murdered as they describe him as being nine years old at the time of the book's publication. His case is one that definitely hit the mainstream and was confirmed by various sources, including one of Carl's best friends, who eerily confirmed that Carl spoke of his knowledge that he was going to die young. With regard to the cases in the book, the Harrisons also do relate that, as with the cases we know about, these children initially started making remarks around two or three years of age, and they petered out at around the time of six years of age, which, as we know, is standard for a lot of children with past life memories. There appears to have been some verification attempts with some of the stories and the verification that is related does use the name of people and sources used and seems to be legitimate research. The first case that interested me was because of the research undertaken and the verification that was made 
and it's the first case in the book and it's a small girl who remembers being hit by a train. Kathleen Wheaton is now a convert to the idea of reincarnation since her small child of two years old began describing a previous life near Haworth, which is a small village in West Yorkshire. This village was also the home of the Bronte sisters, Charlotte, Emily and Anne, and is the location where Wuthering Heights is set. The memories appeared to be triggered by a pull-along toy dog that Nicola was given on her second birthday. The little girl was very excited when she looked at the dog and told her mother, I'll call it Muff, the same as the other dog I had before. At first Kathleen thought that Nicola was just playing and so she laughed it off. They had owned a dog once before but never a dog called Muff. So she just agreed with her daughter that Muff would make a lovely name for a dog and didn't think that much more about it. As time went on, however, Kathleen noticed that Nicola became more and more engrossed with Muff. And she kept asking the little toy dog if he could remember various things they did and shared in the past. And at this point, Kathleen was still thinking it was just childish imagination until one day Nicola asked her mother a strange question which made Kathleen stop and think about things. Nicola's level of speech was advanced for her age and she surprised her mother by asking her, Why am I a little girl this time, Mummy? Why am I not a boy like I was before? Kathleen was a little surprised and asked her daughter what she meant. Nicola replied, When Mrs Benson was my mummy, I was a little boy and I played with Muff. By this time, Kathleen was completely perplexed, especially with the reference to Mrs Benson, as the family did not know anyone called Benson. Nicola's memories became more and more frequent as time went on and Kathleen started taking notes on what her daughter was saying. As is common with these cases, she noted that Nicola's account never varied, even slightly. She insisted that she used to be a boy and although she couldn't remember her Christian name, she knew that her surname had been Benson, just like her mother's. She recalled that her mother's first name had been something like Elspeth or Elsie. She was convinced that she lived near Haworth and that she had two sisters and of course the family had a pet dog named Muff. She remembered that her father, Mr Benson, worked on the railway and they lived in a little house that was near the railway lines. She was able to describe the house in detail to her mother. She told her mother that it was made of grey stone and was in the middle of four houses joined together in a row. She could remember that there were a lot of fields at the back and she used to play with Muff in the fields. She was also able to relate other detailed memories as well. She recalled that her mother wore a long skirt that was kind of a penny just like the one her doll was wearing. In England, a penny is a nickname given to an article of clothing called a pinafore. And this often refers to a long apron that had shoulder straps and a front bib to protect the women's clothing. Women of the poorer classes in England usually wore ankle-length skirts and their penny would often extend down the front of the skirt to around calf length. The penny might only have been a long apron worn from the waist that covered up most of the front of the skirt. Nicola recalled that her mother wore her hair all tied up funny and that description is very similar to the clothes and hairstyle that a poorer woman would wear in Victorian times. Victorian working class women often had their hair braided and pinned to their scalps or had a bun that was then pinned under little cloth caps. Nicola said her father wore big heavy boots and for some reason she felt that she didn't like her father very much. 
She said he always had a blackened, dirty face, but when Kathleen tried to press her for further details about her father, Nicola would shut down and stop speaking about him. She also remembered sitting on the floor eating butties, which her mother made for her, and she had a little friend who was a constant companion. Our English listeners will know what a butty is, but for others, a butty is basically a sandwich that's filled with a hot, savoury filling. So common fillings are usually either chips, bacon, sausage or egg, and there can be a combination of any of those. And they can be a full sandwich or they can be a single piece of bread folded over. Nicola knew that her friend was another boy, but she couldn't remember his name, but he was smaller than the little boy that she remembered being. She told her mother he was around one or two years smaller and clarified by saying not one year and not two years. So I assume he was around one and a half years younger than the small boy she remembered being. She said she and the other little boy used to go to the railway lines together and they played in the fields behind the house. She could remember walking along the lanes and pathways near her home with the dog and she said they played games all the time. She would throw a ball in the air and Muff would run and catch it and bring it back to the little boy that she remembered being then. Although she remembered her sisters, they were much younger than the little boy and she didn't have a lot to do with them. They were too little for me, Nicola related. One was just a baby and was too small to come out and play with me. Nicola told Kathleen that her mother always told her that she wasn't allowed to go near the railway line, but as a lot of small children are wont to do, the little boy didn't listen and he used to go down to the railway with Muff and his little friend all the time. She has very clear memories of the day she was knocked down by the train. I was playing on the railway lines with Muff and my friend, and I saw a man walking along, swinging a lamp. After that, a train came up fast and knocked me over. When Kathleen asked the little girl what happened after that, Nicola replied, I got taken to hospital. Everyone kept asking me if I was all right, but I couldn't walk or talk, so I couldn't answer them. I went to sleep and died, and I saw God in heaven before I was born. But I didn't really die. I came to you instead, and you got to be my other mummy. When Kathleen asked Nicola what God was like, Nicola replied, I don't know how to say it to you. He was really beautiful, but I don't remember what clothes he had on. Enthusiastically, she said, He's much nicer than his pictures. Nicola's insistent and consistent retelling of the story and the detail that she was able to give convinced Kathleen that she needed to try and take her daughter to Haworth. They had been there before, but never to see if she could verify any of the details that Nicola was providing. And Kathleen was also willing to prove that Nicola's account couldn't be verified so she could put the story to bed once and for all and just put it down to childish imagination. As they drove along the isolated country lanes that were surrounded by bleak moor, Kathleen, who was unfamiliar with the area, took a wrong turning and got hopelessly lost. Nicola came to the rescue and directed Kathleen back straight towards Haworth village. She explained to her mother that she knew the way because she and Muff used to walk all around that area. Once they got to Haworth, Kathleen followed Nicola's instructions and was absolutely dumbfounded to find herself standing in front of four old greystone terrace houses exactly as Nicola had described them. They were in exactly the spot the little girl said they would be. 
The physical description of the area also matched Nicola's memories perfectly with the back of the house looking out over open fields. Kathleen noted that the address was 12 Chapel Lane, Oakworth. She went to the Harworth Parish Church to see if she could find any record of a family known as Benson in the church records. The rector told her that she'd be unlikely to find any Bensons in the parish registers as it is an unusual name for the area. However, he did give her permission to have a look and Kathleen was indeed able to find the name Benson in the birth register. The entry recorded the birth of a baby boy, John Henry Benson, on the 20th of June, 1875. His father's name was given as Thomas Benson, whose occupation was given as a railway plate layer. The boy's mother's name was given as Lucy Benson, and if you recall, Nicola said her mother's name was Elsie or Elspeth, but it's extremely unusual for people to recall names at all, and Elsie and Lucy do sound similar. Kathleen was quite overwhelmed by this discovery, and intrigued by her find, she pressed further to see what she could find out about the family. In the archive department of the City of Bradford Metropolitan Council offices, she was able to contact reference librarian Mr Ian Dewhurst. Mr Dewhurst was in charge of the census for the Harworth district. I'm not sure if the census is taken everywhere in the world, so for those who come from countries that might not have it, the census is basically a survey that is performed once every 10 years that asks questions about the people present in each dwelling on the night of the census. It must be filled in on the night and ask questions like the ages of people in the house, their occupations, their education levels, things like that. The census in England must remain confidential for a hundred years from the date it's taken. So the earliest census that Kathleen could access were the results from the 1881 census. The information for 12 Chapel Lane Oakworth in the 1881 census, which was the address of the little boy that Nicola remembered being, listed the inhabitants of the building as being Thomas Benson Hedwick, a 29-year-old railway worker who'd been born in Kildwick, Susie Benson, his 30-year-old wife from Bradford, Hephibia, their three-year-old daughter, and Celis Benson, a daughter of six months. Interestingly, there is no mention made of the son, John Henry, that had been found in the birth registers of the church. As it is required by law that each person must be listed in the census, this implies that the boy, John Henry, might have died before the census was taken in 1881. Given Nicola remembered that John Henry was aware of both his sisters and that the second sister, Salus, was only six months old in 1881, it seems to indicate that John Henry's death must have occurred between 1880 and 1881, when he was around five to six years of age. Unfortunately, the hospital at Haworth that existed in 1880 to 81 had long been closed down, and so it was impossible to check if there'd ever been a record of a child admitted that had been struck by a train. The discrepancy between the name of the mother Lucy or Susie could possibly be due to a handwriting issue on the census records. It sounds like Kathleen didn't see the information directly and instead Ian Dewhurst retrieved it for her. 
While Ian Dewhurst felt the name was Susie, he did admit that the name could have been Lucy, perhaps spelt L-U-S-Y, with the L being written in a flourish, as is common in copperplate writing. The other possibility is that the name was quite simply misspelled on the church record about John Henry. Record keeping in the UK was somewhat sporadic in the 1800s and the misspelling of names did happen. There is no denying the names of the girls are exotic and Ian Dewhurst admits that he may not have picked up the name Hephibia correctly. So again, perhaps it was more of an error in his recollection than the name being wrong. However, it is difficult to recall a name from a past life and Lucy, Elsie and Susie are all similar. So it is possible that the little girl didn't remember correctly. As is often the case with childhood memory, the emotions of the events that occurred in the past life remain attached to the memories and do sometimes surface in the child's current life. Nicola's mother relates an occurrence of this one night while they were watching an old movie. Kathleen relates that while watching a film called The October Man starring John Mills, there was a sequence where a man was standing on top of an old railway bridge ready to throw himself down onto the tracks. There was a shot of the train thundering down the railway track and instantly Nicola started to scream hysterically. She threw herself down onto the carpet, gasping for breath and throwing her arms around wildly. At first, her mother thought she was having a fit or a heart attack and rushed to help the little girl. And instead, she found her to be completely inconsolable as she cried out, the train, the train, the train, repeatedly. Only after her mother switched off the television did the little girl calm down. Kathleen felt that Nicola was reliving the moment when the train knocked her down and she was completely caught off guard as she had no idea that the film would affect her daughter like that. Of course, as we know, this feeling of deja vu when experiencing certain images, smells or sounds is a recognised trigger of memory recall in these cases. Kathleen has no doubt that the events that Nicola described are memories from a past life. To her, the proof that she found in the archives department and the church and in Nicola's own ability to be able to take them directly to the old greystone house that the little boy lived in were incontrovertible proof. She said, I always thought she was telling the truth. I realised that if she was making it up, the story would probably alter, but it never did. Now I know the results of the census, I know she's telling the truth. There is no explanation of how she could have so many details in her head of a place she'd never been before in her life. At the time of the book writing, Nicola was a bubbly, cuddly five-year-old with chubby, rosy cheeks and a head full of golden curls. Her happiest memories were of spending her days with Muff, her little dog. There is no way to really find out where Nicola is now or how she fared after having the memories. The book was published in 1983, so Nicola must be around 44 now. Hopefully, being able to see the old house and talking about it with her mother as a child and coming to terms with what is obviously a frightening memory of being struck by a train gave the little girl the peace and closure she needed to go on and live a long and happy life. The second case from the book has a lot less detail than the first case, but it's one I find myself coming back to frequently because it intrigues me so much. I had heard of this case before, but only in passing, and I never knew where it originated from, so I was delighted to find it in this book. 
This case involves a small boy called Philip Harding. The realisation that he had had past life memories occurred on a day outing that he was having with his Aunt Rosemary. Aunt Rosemary had taken Philip to Oxford as a treat and Philip had never been to Oxford in his life. Rosemary herself had only been there once before when she passed through the town while on a coach trip or in other words a bus trip. The morning of the trip was sunny and no sooner had they arrived in Oxford than Philip asked to be taken to see the clock. Thinking he was just engaging in playful chatter, Rosemary humoured him by saying they probably would pass a clock on the way. Philip answered, but I mean the funny clock. His aunt asked him, what funny clock? Philip then gave a full description to his aunt of a large clock on the side of an old church that had strange markings on the face. He answered, I always went to see the funny clock. Rosemary explained to him that he couldn't have seen any clock in Oxford because he'd never been there before. And Philip replied, I saw it when I lived here, when I was Andrew. Rosemary reports that she didn't take Philip seriously, thinking it was just a lot of rubbish, particularly because the clock that he described was so offbeat that she doubted anything like it actually existed. She noted that the clock Philip described sounded more like a sundial. Rosemary then suggested that they should go shopping, but Philip became upset and started to cry, reiterating that he really wanted to see his clock again. Rosemary says that he looked so dejected that she started to wonder what was going on here. She realised that something was definitely out of the ordinary and was really bothering the little boy. In spite of promises of ice cream and sweets when they went shopping, Philip couldn't be budged. He only wanted to see his clock, which he said was on the side of a church. Understandably, Rosemary was at a complete loss. How could she take this little boy to see a clock that she didn't believe even existed? So she said to Philip, I don't know where your clock is, love. At once, Philip's mood improved and he said, I know where it is, I'll show you. At that point, he took her hand and led her down several side alleys in through the back streets of Oxford and Rosemary said he seemed so intent on finding the clock and was so definite in his knowledge of where to go that she just resigned herself to it. And to her astonishment, they found it. Rosemary said she couldn't believe her eyes. There really was an old church with the most peculiar clock that Rosemary had ever seen in her life. It was exactly as Philip described it to her. She relates it was the strangest thing in the world because I thought Philip's description was bound to be completely out as I thought he'd got it all mixed up but he was absolutely correct. The clock had a large sundial incorporated into the face as well as the regular hands and numbers and that's why Philip's description sounded so confused. Now, the clock is problematic. I did a quick flurry of research to see if there were any churches with clocks on them in Oxford and it turns out there are quite a few. Apparently mechanical clocks were not invented until around 1270 to 1300 and they didn't have faces and hands but rather told the time by striking bells. So unfortunately that means there can't have been a clock face with hands in 1170 which is the exact time period that this case takes place but I will come to how I know that date so thoroughly in a minute. Before mechanical clocks everybody used sundials which of course are also a clock that uses the sun to mark the time as the shadow moves across the face. 
And again, there are several sundials in Oxford. But as far as I can find, there are no sundials that have a clock and hands incorporated anywhere. If my listeners can let me know of a sundial with a clock face and hands on the side of a church in Oxford, drop me a line and I can update the information in a later episode. I am wondering whether Andrew took Rosemary to see a sundial right at the right moment for the sun to be making a shadow on the sundial that looks like hands, because that is an optical illusion that can sometimes occur on sundials. The only church with a sundial that I could find that was old enough to be around in the 1100s was the St Cross Church. And it was built in AD 890 by St Grimwald, but I can't find any mention of when the sundial was added and the tower that the sundial resides on wasn't built until the 13th century, or in other words, in the 1200s sometimes, which is 100 years too late. However, it is possible that the sundial was positioned elsewhere on the church in the beginning and moved to the tower after. When Rosemary asked Philip how he knew about the clock, he reiterated that he remembered it from when he lived there before as a little boy called Andrew. And understandably, Rosemary found the entire episode disturbing, so she never mentioned it to anyone, not even Philip's parents. She feared that it sounded so far-fetched that they'd think she was going crazy. Around a year later, when Rosemary was looking after Philip for his parents again, he suddenly said to her, When I was Andrew, I saw Thomas Beckett being assassinated. Rosemary was astounded, because although she remembered Philip's comments about being Andrew before, he never discussed either Thomas Beckett or assassination on the prior conversation. To even hear the word assassination coming out of the mouth of a young child like that, let alone to understand that he knew of a historical event that was way beyond his field of knowledge, was disturbing. Philip continued by telling his aunt that when he was Andrew, he was bigger than he is now because he was six years old and he could write. Philip said, I wrote down everything I saw. I had lots of notebooks then, but I think they got lost. Philip remembers that he'd been taken to Canterbury for some reason from his home in Oxford, and it was during this visit to the city that the Archbishop was murdered. He remembered seeing lots of people rushing about and relates that there were a lot of soldiers in the city. He told his aunt the soldiers had giant swords and big long shields with drawings on them and they wore funny masks on their face. Some of them were on fancy horses and some were just standing about. They were very noisy and they shouted a lot. So to pause in our account here and to fill you in a little on the background information of Philip's memories, Thomas Beckett was an English nobleman who served as Lord Chancellor from 1155 to 1162. In 1162, he became the Archbishop of Canterbury until his murder in 1170. The Archbishop of Canterbury is the most senior bishop and principal leader of the Church of England, which is the ceremonial head of the worldwide Anglican Church. So to be Archbishop of Canterbury was to hold a position of great religious power and prestige. Thomas Becket was assassinated because he came into conflict with King Henry II over the rights and privileges of the Church at the time and he was murdered by followers of the king in Canterbury Cathedral. He is now known as St. Thomas of Canterbury, Thomas of London, and later Thomas of Becket. Not long after his death, he was canonised by Pope Alexander III and is venerated as a saint and a martyr by the Catholic Church and the Anglican Communion.
But to return to our account, Philip related that at the time of the murder, he was actually in Canterbury Cathedral when the murder happened. He said lots and lots of people were there and he could recall that the men wore short dresses and the women wore long ones. Even though he states he was only six years old at the time, he was acutely aware that something awful was happening. He said, I knew it was a very bad thing and that's why I wrote it in my notebook. There was a lot of noise and screams in the church. It was very dark and I couldn't see very well. I was squashed with all the people. I couldn't see Thomas Beckett because of the big people who were in front of me, but I knew he was there and that the soldiers had murdered him and then they ran out. After that, everyone was pushing and screaming and frightened. In case you're wondering about Andrew's comments of the men wearing short dresses and the women wearing long dresses, his description is historically correct for men and women's clothing in the 1100s. Traditionally, men wore knee-length tunics most of the time. The wealthier classes wore long tunics with hose and mantle or cloaks, and the women also wore long tunics or dresses. But back to the case, Philip's Aunt Rosemary was shaken by her little nephew's revelations, but there was no doubt in her mind that her nephew's memories were real and that he had lived before, in the 12th century. She felt that no child of his age could have had such knowledge of events which took place so long ago. She recounts that the family were not the type of family to discuss history and certainly would never discuss a murder in front of a three-year-old child. She relates that as far as she knew, she didn't think anyone in the family knew anything about Thomas Beckett. She just knew he existed once and that he was murdered, but she had no idea how or why. Rosemary says, I think the whole thing is a bit creepy. The thing that puzzles me most is that when Philip first mentioned Beckett, he used the word assassination, not murder, which would be more the thing a kid would say, and what's more, he seemed to know exactly what assassination meant. Marion and Peter Harrison claim in the book that there is one link with Oxford in the story of Thomas Beckett. Robert of Cricklade, who was a prior of St Frideswides in Oxford from 1140 to 1180, wrote about the life of Thomas Beckett. However, as the prior never married, they felt it was unlikely that he would be in the company of a six-year-old boy at the time of the murder. I'm not sure why they jumped to that conclusion, as I'll explain in a minute. The Harrisons feel it was more probable that Andrew was one of the congregation that gathered for the service on that night in 1170. The reason I'm surprised they were so convinced a religious person wouldn't be in the company of a six-year-old child is that, in fact, if we are to believe Philip's account, the chances are more likely than not that he was connected to a religious life than any other sort of life. As we know from past episodes, education of children was somewhat patchy throughout the ages until approximately the 1800s. In 1330, or 160 years after the death of Thomas Beckett, only 5% of the population could read. Schooling seemed to come under the domain of religion more than any other, with most schooling being tied to either churches or monasteries. Elementary song schools were usually attached to a large church in towns. At this school, young boys were taught Latin by singing hymns and songs. And I say young boys and not young boys and girls because girls, unfortunately, at the time, didn't really receive an education unless they also joined the nunnery. 
But for the boys, at these elementary song schools, young boys were taught Latin by singing hymns and songs. If there was an educated priest attached to the school, the boys might have learned to read and write. Monastic schools were, as would be expected, were for students who were to be trained to become members of the church, and the lessons were taught by monks and all lessons were concerned with religious education. Sometimes local boys from poor families were taught and in exchange for these lessons, they worked as servants in the monastery. Grammar schools were usually part of a cathedral and focused largely on teaching the boys Latin grammar. And these schools were very similar to Roman schools, so there was also a degree of logic or debate taught and rhetoric, which was like public speaking. The only schools formally focused on anything other than religious education were Oxford and Cambridge, in which the students could obtain a Bachelor of the Arts degree by attending an agreed number of lectures. If only it were that easy today. For the Master of Arts degree, they had to stay for another three years, and as well as studying, these students had to become teachers at the university. So as we can see, education and religion were merged inextricably together, and the chance of a six-year-old boy being able to write well enough to be able to write extensive notes in notebooks would probably only happen for a child connected to the church in some fashion. Perhaps Andrew was a child who was admitted to a monastery at an early age. According to Beatrice Cassiu, Professor of Byzantine History at the Sorbonne University, who wrote for a journal about the admission of children to monasteries in the 1100s, it was common for families to want to dedicate their children to a monastic lifestyle from an early age, and monasteries frequently took in children who were orphaned. The church father, Basil, who is considered one of the founding fathers of monasticism, wrote a canon about the recommended age of admission of children into a life of religious service and abstinence. Basil was very accepting that children should be part of religious life and he agreed to receive them into monasteries at a very early age. He wrote, Since our Lord said, Suffer the little children to come unto me, and the apostle praises him who from a babe has learned the sacred writings and orders us to bring our children into the nurture and admonition of the Lord, we are of the opinion that every age, even the earliest, is suitable for their admission. And thus, such children as have lost their parents, we adopt of our own free will, being desirous after the example of Job to become fathers to the orphans. Logically, a six-year-old boy who could write and presumably read in a time where only 5% of the population was educated strongly points to Andrew being there in a religious capacity in some form and given his young age, presumably he was there with another member of the clergy. Who knows, maybe even the esteemed prior Robert from St Frideswides. Maybe he brought the boy with him either as a scribe or a page or to enlighten him in his religious instruction by hearing a sermon from Thomas Beckett, the leader of the Anglican Church at the time. I do have another concern about this account, and that is that all of the information of Philip's conversations appears to come from Aunt Rosemary only. There is no mention of anyone else being included in conversations about it, and I find myself wondering why Rosemary kept so quiet about the conversations, particularly after the second one, and never even asked his parents if they'd ever noticed Philip relating anything unusual. Given they aren't even mentioned, it must be assumed they had nothing to contribute to this account, 
Or maybe they don't believe in reincarnation. Or was Rosemary making it up? It is a fascinating account and there is a part of me that hopes this case is true because it would be remarkable to have such a description of a pivotal moment in history that happened over 800 years ago. Thank you for listening to Reincarnation Past Lives Revisited. We hope you enjoyed these cases. If you have any interesting stories about reincarnation or if you can relate your own past life experiences, I'd love to hear about them and I can be contacted through my email at reincarnationplr at gmail.com or via my Facebook page called Reincarnation Past Lives Revisited. If you'd like to support me, I'd be honoured if you'd become a Patreon supporter. You can find me on Patreon under Reincarnation PLR. I don't do extra content at the moment, but I'm hoping to do content in the near future that doesn't relate to reincarnation cases because I do want to keep the cases open for everyone to explore it. So I'll let you know when the new content drops so that you can then decide if you want to be a part of it. But for the moment, your support helps me to keep on pumping out content and lets me keep on doing what I hope you love hearing. We'll be back again soon with another episode, but until then... Remember you are unique and your life has a purpose.